Hey, everybody, welcome to the Investor Frame podcast. I'm your host, Paul Sparks. And on this show, we ask successful real estate investors and entrepreneurs to share their stories so we can all learn from their experiences and get closer to the things that we want in life. Today, I'm here with a friend of mine, John Heisler. He's been in the, the Whale Club with me for, I don't know, maybe going on six months now, but he's yeah. got a really, really amazing background. He's a physician's assistant that made that transition from, you know, high income W2 into the real estate investing world. Uh, what I like about John and his partner Harrison is that they've got a lot of awareness around what they're trying to accomplish. We're going to talk about their barbell today and how uh, they make up the most, they made a mistake. A lot of us made, which is we overbuilt a certain part of our business. Um, but I'm really looking forward to having him tell us a little bit about what he's doing on the commercial side. They do all sorts of stuff with assisted living living facilities and just very creative commercial deals. And then they also got a, a syndication fund where they're raising some money right now. So doing some a lot of a lot of really cool stuff. And um, John, great to have you, man. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. It's gonna be fun. Awesome. So we kick every show off with a six word update. So what is your six word update today? So I'm in a season of thinking about this. So my six work update is narrow focus for a strong foundation. Sounds like some certainty stuff right there. Absolutely. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So uh, I think you mentioned this recently and I kind of incorporated that in my recent talk at CG, but uh, I got into real estate probably like a lot of us. I believed lie number one, which is you can replace your W-2 income with a couple of rentals passively. And then I bought a couple rentals and very quickly figured out that was not even close to reality. So like any high achiever driven person, I started a company and tried to buy a bunch of properties wholesale with the goal of keeping them for myself, but then very quickly got into the wholesale game and learned it's a business and not a, a hobby. And, you know, had some success with that over a couple of years. And then thought that we were going to be real estate mogul entrepreneur guys and be able to start 13 businesses and have them all succeed. And, and maybe that is still in our future. But uh, what we did is we grew too fast and we didn't grow well and we didn't level ourselves up as leaders. And we never thought about what was the right size business for us. Why did I start that wholesale company in the first place? And how many employees do I want to manage? How all those different things we never thought about. We just started and went, which is, you know, obviously one of my strengths, but where your greatest strength is, is also where your greatest weakness lies. And so just not ever thinking about things, just doing them and reacting uh, is the way we kind of learned that. So from mm -hmm. there, once we finally figured out we weren't doing well in any of them, uh, at the same time the market started coming down, we decided we need to kind of narrow our focus streamline our business, cut expenses, keep one marketing channel so we could just actually be good at it first and then expand back out into those kind of higher opportunity areas. Mm -hmm. John, is it like so many of us entrepreneurs struggle with this? I did the exact same thing, which I think was why uh, you and I get along so well is because mm -hmm. it's like, well, we went through the same process, just overbuilt. Is that... You know, one of the things we we talk about is these cognitive biases, you know, these hardwired biases that we all have. Um, and I sum up a lot of that into one word, FOMO, right? Fear of, I don't know if it's always fear-based, but I'm curious, like, 
why do we do that? Why do we overbuild as entrepreneurs? Why do we think we can build 13 <laughs> businesses at once? Why can't we focus? What is it? Yeah, I think it's it's a mix of a couple of things. You know, obviously, once you get in that space and you have friends in that space and you've got folks you're seeing who are way ahead of you on social media that have a bunch of different businesses and everything looks awesome, you're like, man, I want that. I want all those businesses and to be chilling while they all make me money. But then also because we're the kind of people that are not afraid to go try and execute something, then to your point, I mean, you pulled me away from doing it last week when I was like, I had this pain in my life, so I need to go make another hire. Like that was the answer before I'd ever built the case for it. And so that's what we do. We've got this pain. I want to get to here. Let's do this thing. Let's start this business. This business is really hard. Let me hire an AM. Well, we're not getting that many leads with one channel. Let's get two channels. Like we always think of the strategy and we never think about, you know, why are we doing that? What's the actual case to do that? What are the downsides if I add another marketing channel? Where's my mental energy and time and all those things going to be focused on? So, well, there's just, yeah, I mean, all, all those things. Um, there's no dopamine in the reliable stuff, like narrowing your focus and staying consistent on one thing. I mean, there's so much dopamine that hits even when you just get this idea. Hey, I have this idea for this new thing. And immediately you're like, my day is going so well. I just had this awesome idea. Um, (laughs) you know, it's like, it's like the, you know, squirrel, squirrel. Um, for me, that's what it was. It was kind of a a coupling of shiny object syndrome compared with, you know, or, or coupled with like comparison. I, I like that you mentioned seeing other people's success and on social media and, Uh, We want that success. We want the identity of this successful real estate investor. And we're so willing to just hop around from thing to thing. A lot of it is because we haven't made the case. Like you said, we haven't slowed down to define like, what is our game? What do we actually want here? Um, Because as you know, and I'm, I'm excited to hear you talk about all the different things you're doing in real estate. There's a lot of ways to make money in real estate, Yep. but you got to narrow your focus for a strong foundation. So that's a great six word update. Yeah, thanks. Um, let's talk a little bit about the solvable problem because this all comes back to the solvable problem, you know, and um, how can you be getting closer if you don't know what closer means? So what does that mean for you? Yeah, that's a good question. So, and I'll preface this by saying, I don't, ha- I don't have the exact final answer of my solvable problem for the rest of my life. And right. You know, I'm 37 years old at that point, so I'm not the oldest in this business. But every time I go to places like CG and whatnot, there's guys crushing it that are half my age. But um, I've now kind of gotten comfortable with the fact that my solvable problem has changed many times over the past couple of years, and it likely will again. I kind of started this journey like most people do for the for the quote unquote passive passive income, and so. I have a passive income goal number in mind to get to uh, in my life. But after starting the business and, you know, realizing it can, it can take over your entire life if you let it. Uh, I'm really just trying right now to right size our direct to seller business and have that running consistently and not be entirely in the owner's box where I'm doing nothing, but having strong employees and a small team that I can rely on. That's good that I can kind of continue to coach and grow them, but that's a relatively small team that's lean. 
And that allows me to mentally have the energy and time to go focus on the big deals. Cause like you're saying, we love uh, sometimes to my own detriment, love the commercial space, love learning new things and doing new things. And um, we recently started a syndication fund, which is, is funny because when we did it, we kept asking ourselves, are we just getting shiny object syndrome with something new? And so we, this was probably the first time that we actually did build a case for something before we went and just did it. And so we thought about it for several months before we pulled the trigger. And the reason that we pulled the trigger on it is because um, compared to, you know, a lot of syndication funds are we're going to pull our money together and buy this big office building or storage facility or whatever. And we have office buildings and storage. But this time we did a residential fund that focuses on uh, holding properly properties creatively, both lease option, contract for deed, things like that, where we can get a higher rent and can get a higher interest, uh, uh, get a higher return uh, for our investors. But the reason that we decided to do it is because it was essentially business adjacent to our direct to seller business, and it would complement it really well. And we were already doing all the things needed to be done to do that. So we could take our own properties from our wholesale business we already had the whole conveyor belt set up and so we would just keep a percentage of those properties which was back to my initial solvable problem always one of my goals of keeping more property building up the passive income side so that's kind of why we decided that it was a good idea we also actually have a strong dispo partner that we brought on who has his own business finding lease option uh, tenant buyers. And so there's a lot of synergy there and we don't have to do all the work ourselves. We've got a strong partner who's already good uh, and we can just kind of put in the fund. It also leverages something that we've always been good at and always done, which is raising private capital. So it just ticked a lot of boxes and made a lot of sense for us at that time. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, you said a lot of, of really like, I want to pull apart some of the stuff that you just mentioned there. Um, first, as you mentioned that this idea of the solvable problem is like a checkbox. Like, okay, now I know what I want in life. I guess I don't ever need to revisit this again, right? Mm -hmm. It's like most people, when you ask them, like, what were your goals and what you wanted three years ago? It's probably very different than what you want today. And it's probably reasonable to assume it's going to be very different than what you want three years from now. You know, and so I think of the solvable problem less as like a checkbox and more as like a continual process that you have to revisit, right? You can't just, that's the problem with setting goals is we're making our best guess into the future on what we think it's going to be. And the problem is we get so caught up on like, here's how it needs to happen, but we don't have all the information. And so then we get sort of tunnel vision and blinded to our own ideas and you know businesses or whatever it is. And we can't quite see other options as they present. And, and so what I love about you know, what you just sort of said there is, first of all, I reserve the right to change my mind about my solvable right. problem, mm -hmm. right? We're going we're gonna to aim at something because we've got to know whether we're getting closer towards something, but we also have to revisit the target. Is this still the same place that I want to go? And that requires an operating system. 
right? It's like you, you keep saying make the case and all these different frameworks. The reason why I think these frameworks are so powerful is because we're not just solving like one problem in a vacuum. Like it's a continuous ongoing process of how do we get close to what we want in life and that target's going to move. So mm -hmm. it's more about, I think, learning how to read the terrain, re learning how to navigate uncharted lands because a map's not going to do you very much good. We need to we need to have all of the the directions and like again I just think of it as more of like a toolbox to navigate this. What's your thoughts on that? No, absolutely. Um, and when you're talking about that, I was thinking about you know the the solvable problem is a journey, and we think of it a lot of time as this like final retirement destination. And I the more I think about all of this as a journey, and our life has seasons, and we were in a season of Un, unrestrained growth and then we had to be in a season to pull back to get financially solvent and to actually have a good company and not that we're out of that season yet but we're towards the end of that season and so now hopefully with all this stuff we can kind of grow responsibly so we're about to enter a season of growing responsibly and all that changes your solvable problem a little bit every time so i love the concept of it's this ever-evolving thing um, and yeah, it's kind of the end state that we're trying to get to, but it's going to be a little bit different every time. Yeah. I mean, and knowing things like I, um, I think that when I think of the solvable problem too, I think of it as a number, but I also think of it in terms of what are the other things like what, yeah, but if you give me $10 million, let's say I use this example all the time and you've heard me say this, but it's like, yeah, but you're out of shape. Your wife wants nothing to do with you because you're never around. Your kids don't hardly know you because you're never around and all these other bad things that maybe you could have, but we're going to make sure you get that 10 mil. Um, so we all know that it's, it's more than just money. And I, when I think of the solvable problem, I think of it as well as like, you could look kind of zoomed out. Um, what kind of energy do I like? What do I want my day to look like? You right. know, what, what kind of optionality do I want to have in my life? Um, you could look at it like that, but then the best part is this, these frameworks also work when you zoom in and say, how do I solve a problem in my, with like, for example, um, we were talking about your executive assistant and, mm -hmm. you know, you were talking about wanting to hire somebody and these different things. And it's like, well, the solvable problem applies when you zoom in into little like micro problems that you can solve in your business, but also, you know, on a macro level too. And, Right. I think it all comes back to what you sort of alluded to, which is like with your business, for example, you've got your wholesaling business. Well, off of that, you're going to create a lot of options. You now, now you could, you know, you've got this outlet where it's pretty low risk and low effort to mm -hmm. offload certain things in these different ways. And, but if you get so attached to like what it has to be, you might miss these opportunities and these options. That's what I'm seeing lately is like you guys are finding all of these much more efficient ways to accomplish something. And you have a framework to think through, like, does this actually help me get closer? And that's all this is, right? Right. Yeah. 100%. I love that. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about some of the strategies that you're doing because you guys are doing wholesaling. You're doing commercial, you're doing lease to own and lease options, all sorts of stuff. So like, how do you and Harrison think about 
the ecosystem that is what you're building and how do you think about it in terms of the barbell? Yeah. So, um, the barbell, as soon as you explained the barbell principle to me, a couple, of CGs ago, it just clicked and it was something that I was probably getting closer for and striving for, but didn't have a name for what we were doing. Uh, because I, I never wanted to just have a wholesale business, just a direct to seller business. Like I def I definitely want the consistent active income that that can bring, but I love these big deals. They're just so much fun. And a huge thing that I love in this business is looking at a deal, thinking about it creatively. What's the best use for this building? What could it be kind of dreaming for what it could be? And then and then making that actually happen is super awesome. You know, taking it from a old dilapidated building. The the first commercial building we bought was in bankruptcy court for two years. And it was two old 20,000 square foot office buildings. So 40,000 square foot total sitting on a super busy road on about two acres. And they were just empty, boarded up. It looked awful. They hadn't been painted since the 80s and no one wanted to touch them. And they just kept dropping the price over and over. It was on the MLS the whole time. And so we just kept in touch with the agent, uh, but made them a, you know, shockingly low ball offer, but kept being persistent. And, you know, they finally said yes. And it was a huge renovation, <clears throat> but rather than just do exactly what that building was before, our little tweak there was small business office and just uh, chunking it up into a bunch of smaller spaces and, selling uh office space by the room or two rooms so you know just a couple hundred bucks a month and there's a ton of people out there with small businesses that need a small space uh that are just entrepreneurs like us so it's a really cool energy to kind of be involved in that so that was kind of what got us started in commercial but i just loved the creative aspect of taking this old building putting the deal together you know building the capital stack getting funding from a bank talking to investors who wanted to jump in on the deal. Like it was just really fun. So I always want to do that, but the kind of commercial we've been in so far is these kind of, we call them value add deals where we take buildings really cheaply and then renovate them. And, and that takes a lot of time uh, to make money. And it is this big upside play, um, but you're, you may be three to five years before you actually mm -hmm. make any money off it. So I loved pairing it with the wholesale stuff because we got consistent active income, our cash conversion cycle in that business is only, you know, 30, 60, 90 days per property, depending on your exit strategy. So we can be consistent there. And it allows us the flexibility to take these big, as you say, asynchronous upside plays, where we can try to generate, you know, serious wealth for our family. So yeah, it's tough to make those big swings, right? If you don't have consistency in your life. And I mean, when I, when I heard the barbell strategy, it hit me like a ton of bricks too. It's like, wow, that makes total yeah. sense. So, um, can you explain that concept for those who may be, aren't familiar with the barbell? Like, how do you think about it in a maybe condensed version of what you just said? Yeah. So, I mean, you have to have something consistent on, you've got basically two opposing strategies. So we try to have something consistent on this side, that's going to be reliable. That's going to make generate you income every single month. Uh, and then it allows you over here on the other side of the barbell to take an asynchronous upside play. And that could be a lot of different things depending on your interest. For us, it's, you know, these big commercial buildings that take a long time to make money. 
Uh, and they are by default much riskier, right? Because it's, you know, what is the market going to look like three years from now when we refinance it? Hard to say. So, but it's it's safer to do that big play if you have something consistent every month. And I'm not relying on those those deals to work out or not. You know, obviously, I definitely hope that they do, but my life will be fine if they don't. Mm. Well, what a case in point too for. Let me back up a second. Before you left your physician's assistant job, you had a barbell that you were building as well. Tell me about that barbell and how you shifted what was an upside play over to what became an, a reliable play. Right. Yeah. So at, at the time, and you know, a lot of times, if especially if you're a high W two earner, they'll they'll call that the golden handcuffs, and it's so true. It's it's really hard to leave that consistent space of getting a paycheck that's pretty decent every two weeks. Um, there's nothing more reliable than that for sure. And so at the time, you know, buying rental houses and then kind of starting the wholesale company from scratch was the other side of my barbell at that point, to your point. I mean, I remember spending, you know, I was still new. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was spending five, 6,000 bucks on direct mail at the time every month. And the same thing happened. If, if uh, I didn't get any deals out of it, you know, it stung, but I had the money to cover it. So it kind of allowed me to make that asynchronous upside play and eventually turned wholesale into an actual business and not just a solopreneur effort and move it, you know, kind of closer to the reliability side of the barbell, which then allowed us to do commercial and other things on the uh, asynchronous upside side. Yeah. So you're right. I didn't even think about it that way, but it definitely, you know, pivoted at some point. Yeah. And now that you're, you know, building out these upside plays with commercial and it starts out, you're exploring, right? So I've heard the barbell described as, um, it was, these are computer science terms, but they say explore and exploit. So exploit is like you're taking advantage of something that you already know. So exploit might be in the case it's your W-2. Like mm -hmm. you're just exploiting and maybe that's like a it's just a technical term, right? I know it sounds a little like ominous, but um, <laughs> you're exploiting something, a, a known resource that you like can can get with a very high reliability. And you're exploring on the other side, right? So you're exploring wholesaling and then you figured that out. Now you started exploiting that. Mm -hmm. Then you started exploring in the commercial space and you're doing certain deals that will start to become more system, you know, systematized or more reliable and consistent. And we can shift that to the reliable side of the barbell too. But what I want to talk about now is the tendency that a lot of us entrepreneurs make, which is to shift stuff that was either a reliable thing or it was an upside play. But for whatever reason, we like to push it into the middle of the bar so that it's no longer a reliable play and it's no longer an upside play. We have a lot of risk in those cases. So, um, you know, to me, like that showed up for me overbuilding a business Yep. That was supposed to just be a reliable, consistent, like we don't need to hit a home run here. We're not trying to scale this business. It's sort of a means to an end. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like, so tell me how you think of that in terms of your business and yeah. where you might've loaded the weight in the middle of the bar. Man, that resonates with me so much. I mean, that's that's basically what my Collective Genius presentation was just on because we did exactly that. I mean, 
middle of 2022, we doubled the size of our wholesale team because more is always better, right? <laughs> and had multiple big commercial plays going on and um, a bit of a business we've kind of already segued away from was another asynchronous upside play of trying to do like uh, partnered short-term rentals with capital investors. So we had kind of three verticals. One was reliable wholesale, but we made it unreliable by doubling the business and making it a lot harder. And then now our energy and our mental, our time, our energy, all that is, is spread across, across three different things. We took our focus away from keeping the foundation strong, which is why I had that as my six minute word update. And that foundation eroded and we lost the reliability of the wholesale side. And it took us because we weren't looking at you know, our process and performance and all our KPIs every week. It took us probably three months to figure out that things weren't going the way that they should have been. And by then, you know, you're probably six months out from financially fixing the hole you put yourself in. So that's why we kind of leaned everything out to your point, got it farther back on the reliability side of the barbell. And we're now back at a space where it's at a manageable size and we can refocus on those big asynchronous plays. So I think my, obviously my lesson there is to exactly what you said, keep it lean, reliable to where you have the energy to do the big stuff, if that's your goal. And that's definitely our goal. Um, but for me, you got to keep revisiting the foundation and make sure you don't let it crack while you're looking at all the big stuff. Yeah, it reminds me of one of the um, issue processors that we talk about in the Whale Club, which is we want to optimize, then maximize. Um, you know, so it's like, like you said, we're trying to build multiple businesses that are just designed to be reliable, but for whatever reason, we're trying to like scale them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we're also trying to take these big swings but we don't really have enough reliability to take those big swings. It's sort of like back. I mean, this may be an example that it's really maybe easier to understand. Like the W a lot of, all of us made that jump almost mm -hmm. right from W2 into the world of real estate investing. Like you wouldn't just quit your reliable job if you didn't have rentals or if you didn't have capital or you didn't have a way to do deals or something like that, like most of us don't do that. We sort of start wading in. Um, and it's like, yeah, if you don't show up to work on time, if you are constantly like your boss is looking over your shoulder and you're working on real estate stuff, <laughs> your reliable business, your reliable side, like could easily go away. You could get fired. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the same thing that we do with our real estate business is we, we have a couple, you know, months of success, the high month paradigm, right? Yep. We have this great month and we're like, I guess it's time to scale. And, you know, we start adding more people and more uh, marketing channels and more markets and all of these things. And it's like, what we know about system reliability is that the more things that need to go right, the less likely it is to go right. So you're taking on all this risk and we don't really have the bandwidth to support it. 
because we're also trying to do these other things. And so, man, what a common mistake. Like, I don't know why all of us make that, but I think it comes back to our biases. I think it comes back to just not understanding certain things about ourselves or maybe understanding it, but not accounting for it in the equation. Yeah. The one thing you said in that, that I want to re-highlight is the, you get a good month and you hit whatever your target is. You make a hundred K month or something on the wholesale side. And you're, yes, you absolutely, you're like, I'm going to do that every month forever from here on out. I'm like, how do, how do you know that you did it once? Like <laughs> do it four months in a row and then come back and talk to me. You know, like it, we did the exact same thing. That's exactly when we scaled, we hit a nice month. I'm like, okay, sweet. Let's double this business size. Let's do more of that. And it didn't, it wasn't reliable yet. So. Well, and recognizing where you're vulnerable, right? So that's, that's the recency bias. You're mm -hmm. biased by the most recent data point. Or you're biased because you just got back from Collective Genius. Or you're biased because you just heard somebody else who's doing land entitlements, and now we're going all in on that. Yep. And, <laughs> you know, so I found that those things don't go away. You don't just stop having those feelings. But that's where the operating system comes in, right? If you don't, if you if you just react, if you're reacting, um, it's likely that eventually one of those biases is going to affect your decision. It's not like saying we're always bad at decision making. Most of us, I think, right. would would say like we're actually probably pretty good if we made it this far in entrepreneurship. Probably pretty good at making good decisions most of the time. It's the small percentage of the time when you get off track. What's that like? analogy that they say if you're off by one degree after 60 miles or something oh, like yeah. that like mm -hmm. well that's the that's the problem is we get off by one degree and now we start going in this direction and we create all these obligations and all these other things and then we wonder why do we not have the life that we want it's like well because that one decision that puts you off track by one degree led to more decisions and led to more decisions and that's how we got here yeah absolutely I love your reliability. Your reliability piece has helped me so much. I mean, it is actually one of the main reasons we went down to just one marketing channel from we really kind of had two and a half, three at the time. Uh, we eliminated cold calling entirely out of our business. And can it work? Yes. Do we make money on it? Yes. But we had two different channels for us at the time and where we were at as leaders. We just couldn't focus on both. We weren't doing a good job at either one. And so kind of narrowing that back down and that reliability piece made me realize, you know, even if all your stuff, as you always say, is operating at 90%, I mean, still, depending on how many different points you have, that could be a total of, you know, 60% reliability for your business, which I don't know about you, but that doesn't feel good enough for me. So, and if you start introducing other ones and they're operating well below 90%, which is going to happen if it's new, you just tank your whole business reliability. And so especially if you've got more than one area that aren't isn't working right. So now as we if we add anything going forward, I think one of the things we're going to look at is all of those different touch points. Are they all working correctly and operating as close to 90% or whatever the target is? And if they are, then we can safely add another point. But if we've got some part of the business that's currently dysfunctional, then fix that first before exactly. introducing another variable. Mm. Yeah. And when you say all this stuff, it's just sort of sounds obvious, you know, but then you start looking back at all the decisions that you've made. And, you know, for, for most of us, it's not that we need to be taught these things. It's that we need to be reminded, right? And we need a process to continuously 
incorporate what we know into our decision making. Um, and that's the operating system. I, I find it funny because all business owners, if you're a successful business owner, it's likely that you're running your business on an operating system. Right. But, you know, what is, what, if you're running your business on an operating system, like what are you running your own decision-making on, right? How do you prevent yourself from making these mistakes? Because, you know, I can tell you your mistake with like jumping right to strategize and execute in the case model. I make that almost like, I make that less and less frequently now because I've got people that can sort of hold me accountable. I've got language for it. It's like what you were describing. A lot of a lot of this stuff we just didn't have the quite the language to articulate it in, right. um, and that makes it so much easier when you can say it and you can describe it and you have other people who do the same thing. Makes it a lot easier um, to support each other on these different things. Yeah, absolutely. Super helpful too to have someone who knows the same framework and you can talk about it. Like when I called you about it, and you could immediately point out like, "Hey, you're jumping to strategy," and for both of us to speak the same language. It just instantly pulled me out of my entrepreneur pain loop. And like, I'm going to fix this problem by the end of the week. I'm going to hire an EA tomorrow. Like that, all that's a mistake. So plan, prepare for that. Mm -hmm. um, still may do it, but I'm going to build the job description first. I already started that. Previously, we would just hire people and then make a job description. And that's a, that's a terrible strategy. <laughs> yeah, we all have. <laughs> yeah. um, I want to ask you about the optionality that your business creates, right? In terms of the commercial deals, the syndications, all these different things. Um, what makes them asymmetric bets, in my opinion, is that the effort on your side is low. You know, for example, um, yeah, maybe you could how, how do I think about this? Um, so let me give you an example. Some people start a wholesaling business. And they're wholesaling deals. And then what they say is like, I'm going to start keeping some of these deals. I'm going, to, I'm going to create a flipping business. But the flipping business is like just as active as the nope. wholesaling business. Like that's not, a, that's not a passive low effort situation there. Like it's really high effort. So the question is, is okay, well, is this an, is this an asymmetric upside bet then? Like is, is by flipping this going to like, allow me the opportunity to really uh, uh, collapse time in terms of how long it takes to get to my solvable problem. And the problem with flipping is it's just as unreliable as wholesaling until you make it reliable. It takes right. a lot of effort and energy to get there. But what I like about you is that you're not, you're not creating off your reliable business, you're creating upside plays. And the reason that they're upside plays is because either it's got an opportunity to make like multiple six figures or it's a really low effort option that you can just like push it to somebody else and you know they take it. So tell me a little bit more about these options you're creating and why they're upside plays. Yeah, no, that's a good point. You're absolutely right. Uh, and we tried the <laughs> disclosure, we tried the flipping route too and found out everything you said and, and immediately stopped intentionally flipping houses at this point. Um, so on the commercial side, what I love about commercial, besides what I already said, is, is you can partner with a bunch of different partners. It's just a big pie. It's a bigger pie. So there's a lot more percentages that you can throw around. And I don't need, I don't have the ego need to have some massive percentage of the deal if somebody can bring value that I don't have. So the part I love about 
commercial is, you know, writing the numbers, finding it, putting the deal together, raising the capital, all those things. But like a lot of entrepreneurs, I'm a terrible manager. And a lot of these asset classes, I don't have the expertise to manage them. So we found a big office building that we bought last year is 83,000 square feet. It was too big to be office for the area. There wasn't a demand for that much office anymore in the area. And so we found a local guy who had done a bunch of storage units and he thought it was, we did the market research and felt like it would be perfect to be a self-storage facility. So we brought him on as a partner. And so he's guiding the conversion of it into a storage facility. We found the building, put the deal together, got the financing, et cetera. So it's just a perfect partnership because he has a skill set I don't know anything about. He's guiding the the subs and the contractors and all the conversion that's happening right now. And every time he talks, I get some tidbit I'd never thought about for storage. So um, I, thankfully, I did not tell them this before the deal closed, but I would have done that deal for free just to learn what he knows about storage. But I've got him as a partner. He's got just as much skin in the game as me. And so that's what makes it asynchronous. I'm not adding a bunch of extra work to my plate. I'm not getting into a project that I'm not an expert on. So that's why I love commercial. Mm. Same thing on the office side. My other partner is kind of the main manager of the day-to-day -day small business offices. He lives closer to them. Um, he's been in their shoes. He started multiple different small businesses and he relates really well with them. So it's just a nice partnership. Mm. Relationships. What a great way to create to not create another job for yourself, right? That's the problem is like, we all try, we end up creating these jobs and best part about going after deals with that have bigger pies is you don't need as big of a, a piece of the pie in order to still move the needle. And right. so you can, you can, I, I think it's such a beautiful, beautiful barbell if done correctly. There's so many landmines to step on in real estate because there's so many ways you can create a job for yourself. Right. Yep. But you've got this active business. And for a lot of us, that's a wholesaling business. Why? Because we want to control the deal flow. Because what we said to ourselves, right? We had this brilliant idea. First myth, you know, that we bought into was you can collect all this passive income and then you can retire. Mm -hmm. We're like, damn, that sounds amazing. But guess what? <laughs> I need all this active income to do that. And if I leave my W 2, I won't have the active income. So then we go out and we build a business. Mm -hmm. And then we try to build another business and then we try to build another business and we realize, well, that's probably not going to work because then we spent, you know, spend three years doing it. And meanwhile, we didn't collect hardly any passive income because we got consumed trying to build this reliable business. Right. Absolutely. So instead, it's like maybe just focus, narrow the focus and build a strong foundation on like one active income source and let's make that highly reliable. And ideally, that active income source is presenting optionality. So then you can leverage the power of relationships in real estate, and you can push these opportunities with to different people to keep your effort very, very low. That's how you create these, these you know, bets to the upside is not by creating another job for yourself and loading it in the middle of the bar. Right. It's like absolutely yeah. find a way to keep what we say the orientation towards least amount of risk, least amount of effort, most amount of options. Yep. Love that. John, tell us um, 
and this has been such a great conversation. And like I said, you know, you and I have a very similar, we over, you know, went from W2 into real estate. We ended up overbuilding one side, which mm -hmm. is normal. Like if you're there, like it's normal. A lot of us do that. Um, we didn't have the right frameworks, the right language to be able to see that. And so we just started doing things and then that's what happened. So if you're, if you're like John or I, right, you might want to look at what's in the middle of the bar. Where do you have unreliability and ask yourself, well, can I, can I lower my risk and my effort to make this an upside play? And then where am I going to narrow my focus? Because if you're going to be successful in real estate, I per there's, this is my personal belief, right? It's not a right or wrong. But you've got to make a, probably a, a fairly high active income in order to actually acquire the passive income. So what is that going to be? And don't try to build four different active businesses at the same time. Right. Yep. No, learn that. And to your point about you got to have a strong active income to acquire the passive. Absolutely. One of the one of our phrases we use a lot is active to passive. And even on these you know bigger commercial deals where we're bringing in capital investors, that are and banks together to build the capital stack. As a general partner, people have to see that you have faith in your project. So you have to put in money of your own. You should be to prove to them, like, hey, I've got skin in the game too. Yeah. So you gotta have you gotta have active income to do these big passive projects. You just do. So John, what is your greatest lesson learned? You've you've learned in entrepreneurship as you've you know adjusted your barbell and, and made it here today. What's your greatest lesson learned? Yeah. Um, if, if you're okay with you, I'm going to split it into a couple because if you're super early in your journey, I think part of the reason you and I got to where we did is we weren't afraid to fail and we would try something new and we would fail forward, get a little bit better every single day. But then at some point, what happened to both of us is that lack of fear of failure gets you into, to your point, too many active projects. And so if you find yourself in that situation, as hard as it is, slow down, narrow your focus, turn your business into something reliable. And it doesn't mean you don't have to stop doing the upside plays and, and chasing new cool things and learning about them if you have a reliable business. Right. Yeah. And besides that, I think the other thing that I've just learned is, is continue to interface more with people like you, folks that are your peers that are doing awesome things. And uh, CG talks about this all the time, create your own board of directors. I've got a list of guys that I try to talk to regularly. We're all kind of at the same level, but everybody's better at something than I am. And I've got value I can bring them. So I'll call one of them if I've got this issue um, and they'll help me out. And then they'll call me if they've got this and you just create opportunities for each other and you just get better together. So, mm. yep. Community of, of people that, you know, we call this the champions list. At least that's what I call it. You know, just making a list of the people in your life who, because I think one of the dangers early on in real estate is seeking consensus very early. You know, what would you do? And we ask this question, if you were me, what would you do? Um, and the problem early on is we just, those people don't know who we are. They don't know our strengths. They don't know what we like, what we don't like. They don't understand our preferences. And we leave ourselves a little vulnerable to very broad, um, generalized advice. And so, you know, getting around people who actually understand what your game is, actually understand, you know, who you are and what you're trying to accomplish. And then being able to 
seek consensus from those types of people, that is much different, right? Than going on YouTube and trying to figure out what am I going to do to make money in real estate? And what's this guy doing? What's this guy doing? Um, that, that board of directors, like you just called it, I have the same thing, right? It's just so valuable in entrepreneurship and I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And they can call you out if you're going down the wrong path again, like you did last week. It's perfect. It's exactly what I needed at that point. So it's part of it. Yeah. You got to get somebody in your life who's willing to point out, like, I know that you want this. Like, I know you say that you want this, but here's what I'm seeing you do. Mm -hmm. And you got to have somebody that's willing to point that out, man. Yeah. Can't get a bunch of yes people in your life, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, John, thank you for sharing with me today. And um, if there's people that want to learn more about, you know, all the things we talked about, jumping from W-2 into full-time real estate, overbuilding a wholesaling business, and then right-sizing it, right? Getting into commercial assets, building out this, you know, what you're, what you're building right now is an excellent barbell. How can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about that or learn more about you? Yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm not the, uh, as Paul was alluding to earlier, I'm starting in the early phases of actually building out my social media presence, but Instagram is what I'm on the most. So it's at, uh, it's the dot PA dot investor at Instagram. Um, other than that, I don't know, should I give out anything else? I'm happy to give out whatever. That's cool, man. I'll put all, I'll put that in the, uh, uh, show notes that you yeah. guys can, you guys can follow John and uh, what he and his partner Harrison are doing. Um, so yeah, man, thank you for sharing today. Uh, yeah. And for everybody else, we encourage you guys to use the investor frame. So the investor frame, again, if you're not familiar with this is a, is a tool that Dan talks about in rigging the game. And it says, knowing what I know now, would I choose to opt into my current situation? So knowing uh, that you've just listened, if you listen this far in the conversation that John and I just had, what changes do you need to make in your life and your business to help you get closer to what's most important to you? Thank you everybody for tuning in and we'll see you guys on the next episode. Thanks, Paul. It was awesome.